oftentimes I, I see people who need something that we can't give them. So, you know, they need sustained ongoing therapy. They need more intensive kind of social supports. They need their basic needs met. And our system isn't really structured to, to do those things. of Case Confirmed, I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Robix, a primary care physician at Sacramento County Health Center and an assistant clinical professor at the University of California, Davis, where she also serves as program director for the Family Medicine and Psychiatry Residency. She previously worked as a psychiatrist for a program for unhoused youth and for multiple programs for adult and youth survivors of human trafficking. Dr. Robitz is a co-chair for Heal Trafficking's Direct Service Committee, has spoken on a congressional panel about the mental health impacts of trafficking, and has provided many local and national presentations on this topic. In this episode, we spoke about the mental health impacts on survivors, as well as the unintended consequences of policy responses. Dr. Robitz's views are entirely her own and do not represent her employer. She acknowledges her many teachers, including those with lived experience, who have informed her work and thought. Before we jump in, a note on content for our listeners. This episode discusses some heavy topics including human trafficking, labor exploitation, and sexual violence. Please take care of yourself while listening and don't hesitate to take breaks if you need it. Good morning, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us here today on Case Confirmed. Hi there. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So I guess to kind of just frame our questions before we go into, you know, more nitty gritty with this topic, how would you define human trafficking? Something that at least I was really interested in. So like last spring, I took a course on researching gender-based violence and we had an academic who she's Kathy Zimmerman. She's dedicated her career to researching human trafficking. And she's one of the leaders of the course. And we, so we had a whole section on human trafficking in the course, which until that point, I knew very little about. And it was really interesting for me to learn as someone who had basically no exposure to the topic beforehand, that the definition can kind of be like murky, kind of depending on who you ask and what, you know, where you are in the world. So I just am curious, you know, in your work, how you've come to define human trafficking. I work in the U.S., and so I use the federal um, U.S. definition. Uh, So the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, or the TVPA, which came into law in the year 2000, is the kind of federal law that defines trafficking for the United States. And people use a model called the AMP model to understand the definition, actions, means, and purpose, or AMP with action being that someone is induced, transported, provided, recruited, or obtained. The M means is through the means of force, fraud, or coercion. And then the P purpose is for labor or commercial sex. The federal definition actually kind of differentiates sex trafficking of minors. The the means portion, the M, is not necessary. So for a minor, you don't have to prove that someone has used force, fraud, or coercion. Um, any minor really in the sex trade is considered to be trafficked by the U.S. federal definition. Got it. Okay. Okay. And, you know, we've seen in recent years with, you know, the 2018 passing of the FOSTA-SESTA bill, which was passed, you know, to 
the original aim was to, you know, combat human trafficking within the U.S. And it ended up shutting down back pages. And, you know, we've seen in the past few years that that's had consequences for um, those engaged in consensual sex work. You know, it's especially when it comes to back pages having shut down, um, it's kind of eliminated a safe way for sex workers to screen clients. Um, and some of the research and reporting that's been done on FOSTA-SESTA since then has shown that it hasn't done as much as hope to combat um, genuine human trafficking of the sort right. that you just mentioned in the definition. So um, I was curious kind of, you know, what your what your thoughts are on this with, you know, policy and law enforcement sometimes conflating consensual sex work with human trafficking. Um, what are the consequences of this? Yeah, no, this is something that I've definitely seen. Um, and I think when you look at why this occurs, I think it, it really goes back to some of the history of our anti-trafficking laws. And um, when we're looking at the history of our, our response to anti-trafficking, our current laws really are um, set up from kind of two different threads. Peonage laws, or the ones against that peonage, and then the others were kind of these anti-prostitution laws. The first being the Mann Act, I believe it was of 1910. And the Mann Act made it illegal to transport a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. It was applied in a very racist way. So immoral purposes included interracial relationships. So there was a famous boxer, Jack Johnson, who was prosecuted with the Mann Act for crossing state lines with a, a white girlfriend who's a black. And so that law kind of historically defined, it was called the White Slave Traffic Act to kind of differentiate what they were addressing from chattel slavery. And it, it really was saying we have to kind of rescue white women from these men who were trying to force them into these immoral acts. And I think a lot of the kind of the, the media of the day, I found um, images that were used that were like a white woman in handcuffs um, to kind of get people engaged in the, the topic and really work to try and combat what they called white slavery. And a lot of those images, I think, um, and some of the kind of issues around the morality of commercial sex, et cetera, have really bled into the way we currently do anti-trafficking work. And so if you you look at a lot of the imagery that is currently used in anti-trafficking, tends to be focused on trafficking of white women, and there tends to be this conflation with sex trafficking and consensual sex work. And I think that this is dangerous for a couple of reasons. One is when we kind of are bombarded with this image in media, et cetera, of white women um, who we are rescuing, then it biases those like healthcare providers who are who have the potential to identify people who've been trafficked um, in their work. It biases them to only really look for white women. And so in some ways we are missing victims, other backgrounds, and of other types of trafficking. You know, you mentioned another kind of thing that is can be dangerous about that. Um, that being, there was a study that was done um, actually out of the London School 
by Platt et al. in 2018 that found that really any criminalization of commercial sex leads to increased violence, increased STI and HIV risk, and less condom use. And that's whether someone become someone is being trafficked or someone is there in sex work consensually. And so when people are using this these laws to and demand, there are some unintended consequences um, that put people's safety at risk. You know, sex workers' health and rights is something that I've been personally interested in and kind of doing my own research on in the past year or so, but I had not known that history of kind of, you know, the racial undertones in the U.S., which, I mean, makes perfect sense. I feel like that's a, uh, unfortunately, a very common thread in U.S. and, you know, American policies that if you drill back far enough, there will be some type of, you know, racist motive, racist root that, you know, the policies we're seeing today have unfortunately sprung from. Right. And if you, you know, if you look at who is, so, for example, if you Google like human trafficking operation or human trafficking sting, um, oftentimes in the media, you'll see these kind of operations that are billed as human trafficking operations, but ultimately they make very few arrests of traffickers. Um, they identify very few victims, at least, you know, what is shared in the media. And then um, oftentimes I think we're, we're finding that uh, women of color are being arrested. And to me, it doesn't make sense that we're arresting them. You know, trafficking is one of those things where it really requires a multidisciplinary response. And so um, I've, that's a hard thing to hear. You know, it's, it's such a complex issue. And I know that, like, particularly when it comes to things like criminalization or decriminalization, there are lots of kind of complex feelings, um, particularly a lot of thoughts from people who have lived experience. And um, it's something that I, as a healthcare provider, have have struggled with, um, because I, I know that there are people with lived experience. So I, as someone who doesn't have lived experience, have struggled in, in what to do with that. And ultimately, for me, it's important to meet patients where they're at and kind of identify what will help them kind of get what they want out of life um, and live safely and in a, the most healthy way possible. And No, I think that's a really healthy and appropriate dance. You know, especially where you're directly caring for people. You know, I can't think of a a better approach. But but yeah, so to get, I guess, more context, you know, what is the estimated prevalence of human trafficking in the U.S.? And I know, again, this is another one of those points that estimating prevalence for human trafficking is incredibly difficult from what I understand. Estimating prevalence is very hard. And I actually use the international data when I talk about prevalence uh, from the International Labor Organization. They um, estimate that there are about 40 million people worldwide in both trafficking and forced labor. And uh, so that's the data that I most commonly use when I think about prevalence. Okay. In terms of, is there certain, you know, risk factors in terms of, you know, folks that are most vulnerable to being trafficked? Yeah, for sure. I like to think about kind of risk uh, from this kind of structural perspective. And so, you know, there are individual characteristics that because of 
kind of the structures and the systems in place put people at risk. <laughs> so that that is, for example, it's not someone's um, race or ethnicity that puts them at risk, but we know that in the U.S. minoritized populations um, have uh, vulnerabilities related to our our economic system, our criminal justice system, our education system, et cetera. And because of some of the racism that is experienced, particularly structural racism, uh, minoritized groups are at increased risk. Uh, We know that LGBT youth, um, particularly trans or gender non-conforming youth are at risk. And Again, that's not because of their gender identity. It's because of kind of the the systems that exist in our world that that cause that vulnerability. And so, having lack of family support might lead a, a trans youth to um, be kicked out of the house, which then um, contributes to vulnerability. And so, ultimately, uh, we know that disability, um, a history of prior trauma, kind of fewer socioeconomic opportunities, people's immigration status. So when you, particularly in the U.S., if you are undocumented, then uh, you have fewer options for work that has labor protections in place, um, which puts you at increased risk. Um, there are particular visas Uh, which allow for temporary workers, particularly in fields like agriculture, H-2A visas, which are tied to employers. And when visas are tied to employers, then uh, in in industries that tend to have kind of fewer labor kind of protections in place, um, then people are at increased risk for trafficking. And so you know, it's kind of this this interplay of of individual factors and systemic and structural mm-hmm. issues that result in risk for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for all of that, and I really appreciate how you framed it also in terms of the structural forces at play. In my work, we have moved towards really intentionally highlighting highlighting the s- systemic, you know, racism, you know, heteronormative norms that we that we live with here instead of just saying like, Oh, it's somebody's race or somebody's gender or somebody this, that like makes them more at risk for X, Y, Z full stop without giving any context on why that is. I mean, it's not that, you know, their skin color or their sexual orientation or their gender, there's anything, you know, inherently risky in that, but it's living in this society that, you know, does not, fully accept and does not fully support everybody, you know, equitably is what's doing the damage. Yeah. And, you know, along with that vulnerability for being trafficked, it, it's also kind of impacts the way that people access resources and are able to recover from an experience of being trafficked. So, you know, we, we already kind of talked about the example of arresting people who people of color who are victims of trafficking. And so I think, you know, people's experience uh, leaving or getting out of being trafficked and accessing those resources is impacted by all these factors as well. Someone might be less likely to report unsafe working conditions because they're concerned that they might get deported. 
if their you know their immigration status is less secure and uh, so I think it's important for us as healthcare providers to also kind of be aware of that. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of you know from again from your provider perspective, are there common mental health symptoms in someone who has experienced trafficking? And if so, you know, what are they and what are best practices currently to address them? Sure. So we know that people who have been trafficked, there's a high prevalence of PTSD, depression, and anxiety. I think something that's interesting that people often don't think about is that there is a similar prevalence across both labor and sex trafficking. So I think oftentimes people think that the mental health uh, sequelae of sex trafficking are, are more more significant. Um, but in reality, uh, labor trafficking has really significant mental health consequences as well. They present differently between labor and sex trafficking. But then uh, we also know that there's a, they're prevalent in both. People who've been trafficked are at risk for self-harm and, and suicide. There was a study of young people, I believe it was in New York, somewhere on the East Coast, that found that between 30 and 40% of them had engaged in self-harm. There was a, a study of uh, sex trafficked adult women that found that about 40% of them had attempted suicide. Those, I mean, those are really high, high numbers um, and it's, it's quite concerning. Um, I think the other thing that we also know and think about is substance use and, and find that substance use is something that we see either the substance use preceded the trafficking and, and was a vulnerability um, that led put someone at risk for being trafficked or the the substance use was a form a way to kind of cope with the trauma that has been experienced and and then also at times uh, a trafficker could potentially use a substance to um, exploit someone so those are those are the most common things and then as far as um, best practices go so you know we we've spent a lot of time thinking about identification um, and so a lot of work in healthcare has really been focused on um, all right we know trafficking is happening we know that people who have been trafficked seek health care um, and so how do we identify them so that we can connect them to to resources and there's a lot less data around um, specific treatment modalities you know it's I, I think ultimately there are some general principles that we we know are good and then there are kind of treatment modalities that have been used for other forms of trauma that we we think probably make sense with this population. So some of the cognitive therapies, for example, like um, trauma-focused CBT is, is one kind of therapy modality that's used. It's important that we really address trafficking with a multidisciplinary response. And so, you know, I as a physician am not going to be able to meet all of the needs that someone who's recovering from a trafficking experience has. Um, they're really, um, I, I really have to kind of work with a whole team of folks um, in order to make sure that someone's needs are met. Other principles are um, making sure that we're trauma-informed, that we're resiliency-focused, and, and really looking at what the client prioritizes or the patient prioritizes in their recovery. So with everything you just said, you know, some really heavy data points there for sure. Uh, how does stigma 
you know, oh yeah, interact with this as well. An interesting article by Annie Fukushima about stigma and oftentimes um, people who have been trafficked experience a whole like lot of different forms of stigma. Perhaps it's stigma related to some vulnerability that they had, like a disability, um, or perhaps it's stigma related to, like if they have been trafficked for sex, um, stigma related to being um, in the sex trade. And all of these stigmas together interact in different ways because of providers' own kind of blind spots but also can make it uh, so that someone who has been trafficked might be less likely to seek services. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And thank you so much for that recommendation. I'm, you know, personally very interested in how stigma affects health and health care. So I will definitely be checking out that article you mentioned. Yeah. And something you mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, general principles around response to somebody who has experienced trafficking and, you know, their healing journey afterwards. You mentioned trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care is not like a, a kind of treatment. It's an approach to treatment. So trauma-informed care is an approach that recognizes that trauma exists both in the patients or clients that we're serving, as well as in us as, as providers. And really works to avoid re-traumatization by recognizing the signs of of trauma when it's kind of coming out, uh, both in ourselves and our patients. Um, And so SAMHSA has defined some kind of key principles of trauma-informed care, including safety, trust and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, and uh, cultural, historic, and gender issues. So trauma-informed care on the ground looks like, so for example, a patient comes into the emergency room, you give the patient options as to their care, recognize that when we are providing care, it should be around what works best for the patient, not necessarily what works best for us. So do you... Do you want me to listen to your heart first or listen to your lungs first? Um, you know, simple, easy choices, um, but ones that can can give some control to the the patient that we're we're caring for. Also, in our conversations with patients, um, allowing the patient to kind of drive things, giving them some autonomy around what to share and and what not to share, and also what happens next. So recognizing what we feel is best for the patient might not always be what the patient feels and the patient knows their values and their needs better than than we do. And then I think it's important that we also think about our systems and our systems are structured because if our systems don't allow us to be trauma-informed, then we can kind of use individual techniques all we want to try and have trauma-informed conversations. But if our systems aren't in place to support that, then we will fail. And so, for example, if we are overworked and we are kind of overwhelmed and we have a busy 
busy clinic that only allows us to see patients in a room with uh, no walls and just curtains between them for a little privacy, then that is, you know, doesn't put us in a place to be as trauma informed as we could be. And the other piece of this is self-care and the importance of self-care and recognizing that we can't provide good care when we don't take care of ourselves. Um, and so it's important for us to make sure that we're doing that as well. That's a really important point is that, you know, and something I had not thought about fully until you mentioned is, you know, as a provider, you can be, you can know how to practice in a trauma-informed way. And like you mentioned, kind of like give give the patient a little bit of their like a sense of autonomy during the visit, even in just these really small ways, but that I'm sure, you know, add up to something that feels really pow powerful for the patient. Um, but also it's like, how is the healthcare system supporting or not supporting providers and the whole healthcare team uh, to be able to do that successfully, even if you have all the tools and knowledge of, you know, how to provide trauma-informed care, it's not, it's not necessarily enough. And kind of, you know, along that vein, you know, from what you've seen, what can healthcare systems do to reduce barriers to mental health care or healthcare in general for survivors? <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's so much. <laughs> I, bet. Uh, I mean, firstly, much of the treatment that we need is not covered by insurance. And so our, our kind of our structure for compensating care does not kind of support, well support um, providing good care. You know, my, I work in a mental health urgent care in Sacramento County. And so we, we see people who walk in, in, uh, in crisis or um, because the system has failed them in some way and they, you know, they're out of meds and they need a refill or whatever. And Oftentimes I, I see people who need something that we can't give them. So, you know, they need sustained ongoing therapy. They need more intensive kind of social supports. They need their basic needs met. And our system isn't really structured to, to do those things. And, you know, I, I think about you know, just even beyond kind of getting people to mental health care, if, if their basic needs aren't met, then they're not going to be able to access and engage in mental health services for recovery. And so ultimately, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of room for, for growth. I think there needs to be kind of better collaboration across disciplines as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. Slowly but surely, I think we are moving in that direction. At least it seems like, you know, people are starting to wake up to make that more of a priority than it has been historically. For sure. So I had when, you know, reading on the work, all the amazing work you've been doing, I noticed that you had included that, you know, in your philosophy of care states that you work to address the overlap of medical and psychiatric illness. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on what this means to you? Yeah, so um, my training is a bit unique. Um, so I did a combined family medicine and psychiatry residency program, which means that I'm, I'm double boarded in, in both of those fields. And so I, I think that there are a lot of ways 
in which people's experiences of trauma, um, experiences of mental illness impact physical health. Um, but I saw you're involved in, you are the director of that same residency program now? Yeah, so I trained at UCSD, but I am the, the director of that residency program here at Davis. There are currently five programs across the country. So oh, wow. um, yeah, Boston University, Iowa, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Davis, I believe that's it. UCSD recently closed. Um, and there's kind of, there there are also internal medicine psychiatry programs. And so there are a growing number of medical trainees who really recognize the value of this training across specialties and growing interest in these kind of combined training programs. Mm-hmm. If there are kind of medical student, pre-med students listening, um, the Association of Medicine and Psychiatry is a good place to kind of learn more about this, this training path. And ultimately, you know, I think one, it gives me good clinical skills to kind of think about. I have, I have lots of patients. So I do the mental health urgent care for part of my clinical time. And then the other part of my clinical time, I'm at a federally qualified health center where I do a mix of uh, medicine and psychiatry. And so for some patients, I do both their, their medical and their psychiatric care. For some patients, um, I do just psychiatry. And for some, I do medical care alone. Um, and so, you know, the clinical skills are important, but what I really see the value in my training is that I understand both the, the kind of the primary care system as well as the, the mental health system. So, like, for example, when um, I was a resident um, down in San Diego and San Diego was putting together protocols on how to support kids who'd been uh, trafficked for sex, you know, at the meetings, I was able to speak about kind of the need to address both their their medical and their psychiatric issues and how those systems work and how to help kind of those kids navigate both systems, um, which I found to be really valuable, kind of powerful tool in, in doing advocacy work. No, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Rachel, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. I know our listeners are going to learn tons from this. And from our end on Case Confirmed, we are really excited because this will be our first two-part episode. Um, cool. So thank you for kicking us off. And, you know, congratulations to your daughter for, you know, probably being <laughs> the first member to appear on a podcast. Um, you can yeah. show her this episode one day and just, you know, remind thank her you. of just how much, how much goes into parenting a, a young toddler. <laughs> so thank you to you and thank you to the listeners for your patience. <laughs> no, of course. For a little little kid noises in the background. Well, you know, she had a lot to say on this topic. Yes. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Rachel. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again for your patience with Noah. (laughs) No problem at all. No problem. All right. Wonderful. It was nice chatting with you and have a great day.